Nevertheless, if you will take your copy of the scriptures and turn with me to Isaiah 40. I hope that you have gathered from our scripture reading today the incredible power that is found in this passage of scripture. A power that makes me feel very intimidated in my own strength and in my own flesh to even read it to you, much less preach from this passage of scripture. But thankfully... I have been given the Holy Spirit to not simply help me, but to be the one who preaches through me. So I trust today that as you have been singing together, and as we have been praying together, as we've enjoyed the fellowship together, even had the privilege of just giving back to God a portion of what he has blessed us with, simply because he already owns it and he deserves that gift from us, that we now come to the Word of God thirsty, ready to receive what the Lord has provided for us in His Scriptures. So if you will follow along as I begin reading in verse 1 of Isaiah chapter 40. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord is spoken. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you for your word. Now open our eyes that we might see and believe. Open our ears that we may hear and understand to the point of obedience. Help us, Lord, to repent of having made idols that are not even worthy to be compared as insignificant and insufficient. But Lord, yet that's what we do. But help us, Lord, to understand and believe and act upon that which you have spoken. And may our hearts rejoice in what you have proclaimed for your people. I pray that we would repent and confess that sin that keeps us from you. And I pray that we would exalt you in everything that we do, that the glory of the Lord might be revealed even today to some degree until that blessed day when Jesus Christ returns. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Over the course of our study of Isaiah, we have been reminded in very good ways, particularly I can think, Tim, of a couple of occasions, has brought to our attention and helped us appreciate the timelessness of God's word and understanding that these words that we have just read together were composed over 2,500 years ago. And as amazing as it is that these words are still powerful and effective today, to consider the fact and be reminded of the fact that when they were written, they were all written with the future in mind. There were words of warning, of judgment. There were words that they should be concerned with how they live their life 
and should they not follow after the word of the Lord, they would find themselves being punished. That they would find themselves being taken out of the land. This would be decades before it actually happened. Now today, we come to a portion of Isaiah in chapter 40 that was written that not only spoke of the judgment that they would eventually find themselves in because that they would fulfill the word of God in disobeying him, but a word of comfort that would bring relief after that judgment that they would be still decades away from experiencing would happen. In other words, there were generations of people that would hear this message from Isaiah and never live through any of its fulfillment in this world. But yet the word of God was given because it is timeless. The truths that they would find themselves living through were indeed in accordance to what God had spoken of, in some cases, uh, more than decades later, in the lives of those who were not alive when Isaiah initially composed this as the Spirit gave him the utterance to speak. It's even more amazing when you consider the fact that when Isaiah was commissioned, let's be reminded that God told him that I'm going to close their ears. I want to keep them from seeing the truth of what I'm saying. But yet, it still not only came true, but it was fulfilled to some in judgment and to some in hope, depending on how God ordained it to work. So when we come to this passage of Scripture, you may scratch your head and say, Preacher, I just, you know, what's the point? How is that relevant to me? You've already told me it was written 2,500 years ago. Uh, and to even some degree... God has already ordained that there's going to be some who will not understand it. There are going to be some who won't see the truth of it. So how is this relevant to me? Well, hopefully, as we have been reading it together responsively, and as uh, Courtney and Ramon led us in the reading later on from chapter 40, if nothing else, it expresses the greatness of our God. We've tried to sing about it. And to perhaps some degree, we've experienced some level of appreciation and understanding of who God is, but we still don't quite get it all. But as we continue to study, that's where it's relevant for me today. I need to understand that my life goes beyond working at a job that pays me enough money for me to be satisfied. I need to understand that life is made up more than living within a culture or in a society that is well-behaved or well-governed uh, and everything is taken care of and, and I have protection. I need to understand that my life is made up more than just the, the delicacies that I can eat and the experiences that I can partake of in this world. I need to understand that my life is made up so much more than what I want out of it. That I need to understand that my life must be consumed, completely consumed by the person of God who created me and sustains me and has continued to provide a promise of hope that I will enjoy Him forever. Whenever my life is reduced to something lower than that, which I confess it often is. I'm missing it. I'm missing the point. And the only hope that I have of restoring the purpose for my life is to come to a text like Isaiah chapter 40 and be reminded 
of who I am in relationship to who God is. Now we come here in chapter 40. We, obviously that means that there have been 39 previous chapters. We come to a second section, if you will, to Isaiah. The previous 39 chapters, by and large, have been words of warning. Words of woe. Words of judgment. Beginning chapter 40, the first word says it all. Comfort. Comfort, my people, says your God. Now, we live in a day and age which is similar to every other day and age. When we think of the word comfort or when we think about the idea of comfort, oftentimes we're thinking of it in terms of preventative measures. In other words, I want to find a mattress that's going to be comfortable for me to lie on so that I'm not tossing and turning. I want to find uh, an environment like this wonderfully air-conditioned auditorium to sit in on padded pews so that I'm not, you know, moving back and forth and moving all over the place and be comfortable. I'm looking for an office place where I'm not going to be harassed or uh, made fun of or made to feel uncomfortable. We even have conversations in which we avoid religion and politics except for Tim, who, when he gets on an airplane, decides to talk about both, um, in some cases, because we don't want that relationship to be uncomfortable. Now, we do have a concept in which comfort is a prescribed measure. We think about living in a world that's sinful, that makes life very uncomfortable, and we look for a God of comfort. We think about someone like our dear sister Sherry and Andrew who are burdened and we ask God to comfort them as only he can because he understands. He, he can empathize more than anyone. And so we, we understand this measure of comfort but the context in which we're speaking of comfort today in Isaiah chapter 40 is in relation to our sin. The word comfort, as you, I think, have on the screen, yep. Here's a word that means to properly, means properly to sigh. In other words, to gain relief. Uh, Sometimes in a favorable sense it means to, to be sorry for something and then to see that sorrow kind of calm down. Or in a negative sense or an unfavorable sense it means to pity or to console. Some cases it could mean to avenge oneself. In other words, this idea of comfort means that the circumstances that you find yourself have been alleviated to some degree. So when we think about the comfort that Israel is expecting, it comes in a way in which God says to now speak tenderly. Or, as the King James puts it, speak comfortably. Comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Speak according to their heart. Speak in a very heartfelt sense. Now again, this comes as an exhortation after what in our English Bibles is 39 chapters full of warning, woes, and judgment. Now comfort the people. Now that brings us to what is he going to comfort them about? Well, the rest of verse 2 tells us, right? 
cry to her that her warfare is ended. Now, while there had been physical warfare in the land in which Israel knew as their home, that's not the warfare that God is speaking about comfort. We have to go back to Leviticus chapter 26, and if you will allow me to read, it's quite a lengthy passage of Scripture that we've kind of referred to before in this study of Isaiah. But this sets the context, because not only did Isaiah write something that didn't happen until decades after he wrote it, he was just simply rewriting something that Moses had received centuries before, that we find in Leviticus chapter 26, in which God says through Moses to his people, but if you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes and if your soul abhors my rules so that you will not do all my commandments but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will visit you with panic, with wasting disease and fever that consume the eyes and make the heart ache. And you shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat of it. I will set my face against you, and you shall be struck down before your enemies. Those who hate you shall rule over you, and you shall flee when none pursues you. And if in spite of this you will not listen to me, then I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sins." And I will break the pride of your power, and I will make your heavens like iron, and your earth like bronze, and your strength shall be spent in vain. For your land shall I will make your heavens like, I'm sorry, will not yield its increase, and the trees of the land shall not yield their fruit. Then if you walk contrary to me and will not listen to me, I will continue striking you sevenfold for your sins, and I will let loose the wild beasts against you, which shall bereave you of your children. And destroy your livestock. Make you few in number so that your roads will be deserted. And if by this discipline you are not turned to me but walk contrary to me, then I also will walk contrary to you and myself will strike you sevenfold for your sins and I will bring a sword upon you that shall execute vengeance for the covenant. And if you gather within your cities, I will send pestilence among you. And you shall be delivered into the hand of the enemy. When I break your supply of bread, ten women shall bake your bread in a single oven and shall dole out your bread again by weight, and you shall eat and not be satisfied. But in spite of this, you will not listen to me, but walk contrary to me. Then I will walk contrary to you in fury. And I myself will discipline you sevenfold for your sins. You shall eat the flesh of your sons, and you shall eat the flesh of your daughters, and I will destroy your high places and cut down your incense altars and cast your dead bodies upon the dead bodies of your idols. And my soul will abhor you. And I will lay your cities waste and will make your sanctuaries desolate. I will not smell your pleasing aromas. And I will myself devastate the land so that your enemies who settle in it will be appalled at it. And I will scatter among you the nations, and I will unsheathe the sword after you, and your land shall be desolate, and your city shall be waste. Then the land shall enjoy its Sabbath as long as it lies desolate, when you are in your enemy's land. Then the land shall rest and enjoy its Sabbath. As long as it lies desolate, it shall have rest. The rest that it did not have uh, on your and when they fall, when none pursues, they shall stumble one over another as if to escape a sword. Though none pursues you, you shall have no power to stand before your enemies. You shall stand perish among the nations, and the land of your enemies shall eat you up. 
And those of you who are left shall rot away in your enemy's land because of their iniquity, and also because of the iniquities of your, their fathers. They shall rot away like them. Are you, are you tired yet? Are you wore out? He keeps going. But if they confess their iniquity and their iniquity of their fathers and their treachery that they committed against me, and also in walking contrary to me, so that I walked contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies. If then their uncircumcised heart is humbled and they make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob and I will remember my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham and I will remember the land. But the land shall be abandoned by them and enjoy its Sabbath while it lies desolate without them. And they shall make amends for their iniquity because they spurned my rules and their soul abhorred my statutes. Yet for all that, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not spurn them, neither will I abhor them, so as to destroy them utterly and break my covenant with them. For I am the Lord their God. But I will for their sake remember the covenant with their forefathers, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt, in the sight of the nations, that I might be their God. I am the Lord. That's amazing. We can understand a God who gives his people, whom he called by his name, and brought them out of a land of slavery, and gave them rules and said, now if you break them, I'm going to punish you. We get that. That's, what, that's us. We do that. But did you hear the amazing response? We can even sort of get, now if you humble yourself, if you make amends for what you've done wrong, I'll come back to you. But God goes even further. Yet for all that, when they are in the land of their enemies, I won't spurn them. I'll neither abhor them as to destroy them utterly, nor will I break my covenant with them. Why? Because I'm the Lord. <laughs> I'm the Lord. The Lord doesn't do that. That's what sinful people do. But I'm the Lord. And I made a promise to you. I made a covenant with your forefathers. When I called them out, I gave them my word. So here is this word of comfort that Isaiah, before they even leave their land to be taken into the land of their enemies so that their land can now rest. And other people now occupy their land while they're gone into captivity because of their sin. God says, I'm the Lord. I remember my people. And I will remember them and my covenant in the sight of all the nations because I'm the Lord. And Isaiah is to cry to her that her warfare is ended. So while we think of warfare as being guns and shooting people and killing people and trying to overwhelm your enemy. Their warfare, this simply is just a way of saying that there was an appointed time. Yes, this word was used in terms of military service, but there was an appointed time. 
How do we know it was appointed time? Because God told us he was going to appoint a time. He told them that 70 years they would be in captivity. How long were they in captivity? 70 years. When the 70 years were over, guess what he says? Time's up. And what has happened now? Not only is the warfare or this appointed time over, but their iniquity has been pardoned. She has received from the Lord double for all her sins. Pardon. One commentator said that pardon is God's act. It flows from His free grace, is obtained by the blood of Christ, is full and complete, and yields great relief and comfort to guilty minds. That's God's people today. The same atonement that they were looking towards in the future, the cross, is ours when we look back in history to see that Jesus Christ in His blood shed on the cross that we've been singing about today, that we've been rejoicing over today, has brought me pardon. It has taken my sin upon His shoulders. It's taken my sin laid upon Him, the righteous one, so that me who is not righteous may be made righteous through the righteousness of of Christ. God's work of chastening His people is clearly seen. He warned them in Leviticus chapter 26. He fulfilled it as we see in the history of the Old Testament. But it yet is the same loving chastisement that we as God's people experience today. For the writer of Hebrews tells us in chapter 12, verse 2, looking unto Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. In other words, within the context of Jesus dying for our sins, providing pardon for us, providing forgiveness for us, providing cleanliness for us. With this is mine, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Now, why would we grow weary and faint-hearted? Faint-hearted? In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And you have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the ones he loves and chastises everyone whom he receives. For it is discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as a son. Was God mean in sending his people into a land of exile? Was God mean for allowing them to plant seeds that only their enemy would come in and, and, and enjoy the harvest? No, God was lovingly chastening his people to remind them, Obey me. Obey me. I love you. Come back. Be restored. I love you. Obey me. Besides this, we've got fathers who do this, generally speaking. They discipline for a short time. 
But the writer of Hebrews says, God disciplines for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But God speaks a word, comfort. Comfort ye, my people. Your warfare is ended. Your iniquities are pardoned. And it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. That's what we can gain from this passage of Scripture today. That as God's people, we have a word of comfort that comes to us even though we yet sin. We don't have to wait until the worship service to come and during a prayer of confession say, well, let me see why I can remember all the week. All through your life, you have the gift of the Holy Spirit as a believer to convict you of your sin, to say, God, thank you. Thank you for the comfort that comes from what Jesus Christ has provided for me on the cross. There's comfort. It's a word of comfort. And that word includes a pardon from the Lord's hand. But also, the word of comfort provides a preparation for the Lord's coming. Verse 3 and 4, voice cries. In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. A voice cries. Some translations you may read where the commas may be in a different place or maybe it reads differently. The voice is crying in the wilderness or maybe there's going to be a voice crying Hey, in the wilderness, either way, we understand that this is what the gospel writers all share with us about John the Baptist. Centuries after their comfort, a voice is finally heard in the wilderness. Matthew chapter 3 says, In those days John the Baptist came preaching, In the wilderness of Judea, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken by, by the prophet Isaiah when he said, A voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Mark chapter 1 verse 2 reads it this way, As is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness... Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Luke chapter 3, verse 2. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John chapter 1, verse 19. And this is a testimony of John the Baptist. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? John confessed that he, and did not deny, but he confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He says, I'm not. Are you the prophet? He answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord as the prophet of Isaiah said. Now there's a couple of things we can mention right here. There's a lot of liberal theologians out there that want to say that Isaiah didn't write everything that is found in our book of Isaiah. Well, the gospel writers would disagree with that because they would include chapter 40 as part of what Isaiah said, even though he said it before it happened. That's okay. God can do that. But the second thing that we can see is that there is a specific confirmation that we can be dogmatic about that Isaiah's prophecy was fulfilled in the life of John the Baptist. 
He was that voice in the wilderness crying, you better get ready. You better get ready. And what, how, how was it that we were going to get ready? Well, his message was what? Repent. Repent. You won't find that in a lot of Christian self-help books today, that word repent. But you're not going to get anywhere in your faith in Jesus Christ until you do. There must be a complete 180 degree turn from who you are, where you were headed, and repent, confess it before God, and start following after Jesus Christ. That's not going to happen until you're going to do what Jesus says. If you want to be my disciple, you are going to what? Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. You can't take his cross and go your own direction. You can't go his direction without taking up your cross. And you can't do any of that until you have repented of your sin. So all of that comfort that is provided for God's children to whom he lovingly chastises has absolutely nothing to do with somebody who has not first come to this point of preparation through repentance. I would encourage you today to think seriously, not about how often you show up in church, how spiritual your family is, how many verses you can remember from vacation Bible school, or even if you have a Bible. I would ask you today to consider in your heart, have you come to that point of repentance? For without that repentance, there is no comfort. And apart from that comfort, there is no life, only death. Destruction and the punishment that God has indeed foreordained and promised to us through his word for those who would reject him. So there is a preparation for the Lord's coming. That, that is a comforting thing. And, we're, and John was making a way so that there would be no obstacle. That there would be no hindrances for when Jesus comes, that there would be anything, in other words, the, the mountains that be brought low because we don't want any obstacles having to climb a mountain to get to Christ. We don't want to have to go through a valley so we have to climb right back up again. We want it made low. Go make it straight. Not to be confused with easy, but we're going to make it plain. Why? For this third aspect of the word of comfort the revelation of the Lord's glory. Verse 5 says, And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. That's really hard for me not to try to break into Handel's Messiah and, and, and kind of do all that stuff. Trust me, I have been so distracted by Handel this week and previously. But that's okay. It's God's word. But all flesh are going to see what? The glory of the Lord. Now this, in my mind, and hopefully this will not be a distraction for you, but I've included for you today what my mind thinks about it. Because I think about, again, Handel did it to me. Uh, he, he was using God's word, and God was using perhaps him to do that. But I'm thinking, who is this king of glory? The glory of the Lord shall be revealed. Who, who is this? Well, John the Baptist gives us some indication of that, but I believe that there was some words of hope and promise that even those who heard it originally could gather from the Old Testament writers, including Psalm 24, in which we read from verse 24, Psalm 24, verse 7, Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? 
The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. So when we think about this word of comfort that Isaiah gives to those who are destined to go into exile only to find God's loving chastisement bringing them through to be who he wants them to be, he gives them a promise that prepare the way of the Lord. He's coming. Now those poor souls did not live to see the day when Jesus Christ would walk through the path that John the Baptist had prepared for him. But he came. And he is that glorious king. He is the one that John the Baptist foretold and prepared the way for. He was the one that Isaiah speaks to us about. And I'm looking forward to the remainder of our study through the book of Isaiah because it goes into great detail about who he is. But I'm going to share with you at least three things today that we can gather from this passage of Scripture. And maybe it will be before lunchtime when we're finished. Because that was the introduction. And you laugh. And I laugh at you for laughing. I'm just kidding. But understand that the King of glory is the Lord. John the Baptist identifies the Lord who is coming in glory as Jesus. Well, is there reason to believe that Isaiah was also talking about Jesus Christ? Well, in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 10, look. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and His arm rules for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him. And his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms and he will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. This sounds a lot like what Jesus Christ said about himself in John chapter 10 verse 11 in which he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. I believe that when Isaiah was writing in chapter 40, verse 10, about the Lord, God comes with might, and he will tend his flock like a shepherd, he was speaking about Jesus. He is the king of glory. Isaiah 40, verses 18 through 28. We won't read all of this because we have already included it in our, in our reading today. But this is overwhelming. I started to say you should do something, and I have to be careful about what you should do. What I would encourage you to do <laughs> strongly is to take this one section, verses 18 through 28, and I, you know, live with it for an extended amount of time. Chew on it. I know we've got some prescribed scripture reading if you're reading through the Bible in a year. I know that you have devotionals that you're going through. But I would, this week, read this every day this week. Be reminded of who Jesus is as Isaiah presents him to us as the sovereign creator. Because who are we going to liken to God? To whom are we going to compare him with? Do you not know? Have you not heard? These rhetorical questions that Isaiah gives about the one who has created Everything and is sovereign over it all. It sounds a lot like what Paul says in Colossians chapter 1. 
He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dimensions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. That's the reason why the nations are like a drop out of the bucket. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the king of glory. Not only is he the good shepherd, but he is the sovereign creator that Isaiah is speaking about here in chapter 40. But he is also the power giver. Verse 29 says, He gives power to the faint. To him who has no might, he increases strength. Even you shall faint and be weary, and young men shall be exhausted. But they who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles, and they shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Listen to me, chapter 41, verse 1. Listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach and then let them speak. Let us draw near for judgment. Be strengthened. It is God, the King of glory, that will strengthen you. He will help you. Again, think about the context. He has just made promises and warnings and will fulfill it through bringing them into another nation to serve the Babylonians, only to, in his love, bring them back to the land. And he tells them, I will strengthen you. You've been disobedient. You've suffered the consequences of your sin. You've been restored. Now let me strengthen you. You're going to fall flat on your face when you've got to do it on your own again. Let me give you strength. Mount up like with wings like eagles. Run. Don't get weary. Why? Because... I found a new vitamin? Did I found a new drug? No, because it is God who strengthens me. In this world of sin and tribulation and temptation, in our flesh, we need strength. And so Paul tells us very similarly in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this thorn in the flesh that it should lead me. But the Lord said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ, so that the power of the King of glory, so that the power of the Lord may rest upon me for the sake of Christ. Then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You know what the message is that we get from the Scriptures about our weaknesses and our strengths? Is that it is, it is better... For us to be weak and to fall and to be frail and to experience the grace of God and to enjoy Him, that it would be for us to never experience the trouble. Now you scratch your head on that one. You, you get these questions like, well, why did God let sin come into the world anyway? Well, the, the, the closest I can come, which again, it's not really close, but the closest I can come is to understand that the only way I could truly appreciate what God is and who God is and what God can do and how He can sustain me in spite of my lostness is be lost. 
I'm not going to reason logically through that. I'm just going to simply take the word of God's word for it that when I am weak, I am then made strong through the power of Christ. Which again brings us back to the idea of comfort that we usually think of it in terms of preventive measures. Now I'm not suggesting that you take that nice, soft, cushy mattress that you bought for your, you know, your good, well sleeping and just throw it off and say, you know, I'm just going to trust the Lord tonight and I'm going to, I'm going to lay on the floor. And I'm going to be uncomfortable, but you know what? The Lord is going to comfort me. Now you know that that's pushing it. You know what? I'm just going to start picking a fight with people because I don't want to get along with them anyway because God said He was going to strengthen me when I'm uncomfortable. No, 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 no. But to understand that as we live in this fallen world, as much as we pray, and rightfully so, that God would somehow intervene and heal and restore and to give strength and to fulfill our promises and our hope, that most of all, that in the midst of our weakness, we would find the mighty King of glory. So that in our pain, in our misery, in our discomfort, in our inconveniences, in all of our dissatisfaction of life, that we find Jesus Christ more than enough. That's what we sang this morning. That's what we sang. Do we mean it? I hope we do. Because He is the King. Now, the text tells us that the King of glory shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. So when's this going to happen? Now you knew I had to make a reference to the charts. Even though Pastor Charlie has not, we, we still have thankfully the, the stained glass windows that are reminding us of the cross of Christ uh, and, and hopefully that will help us and aid in our worship. But that's where the charts come in because depending on what you think about the timing of Christ's return and, and whether there's going to be a literal kingdom or not. I'm not going to spend all the time on this. But just depending on when you think this is going to happen may reveal about what you think about when it happens. John chapter 1 tells us that with the Word became flesh, when Jesus came and dwelt among us, John says we have seen His glory. Full of grace and truth. This is the only begotten of the Father. But is that the glory that we revealed? I don't believe so, because Isaiah says what? And all flesh shall see it together. So we think about Matthew chapter 16. For the Son of Man is going to come with angels in the glory of His Father, and when He will repay each person according to that which He has done, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Is that the glory? There are some who believe that there has been a time that history hasn't recorded that Jesus Christ did come back to earth in a sense to reveal His glory. In fulfilling some, and particularly this, this word that Jesus says here. Chapter 24 of Matthew says, Immediately after tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the, here we go, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. I believe that what Isaiah is speaking about here, chapter 40, is that when the glory of the Lord is going to be revealed, all flesh will see it when He returns. 
Have there been measures of God's glory being seen while he was on the earth? Absolutely. You go on the Mount of Transfiguration, there were at least two or three disciples, James, John, and Peter, who were on the mountain with Jesus. They saw Jesus Christ in his glory. But that's not what Isaiah was prophesying about because all flesh didn't see that. But there is coming a day when the King of glory shall be revealed. The Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. Are you ready for that day? Are you His? And this brings us to the last point. And it's not quite lunch if you live on the West Coast. The reliability of the Lord's Word. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. We really don't have to say anything else more than that. However, Isaiah does in verse 6 and 7 and 8, kind of, kind of expands on it. A voice cries, What shall I cry? Well, this is what you cry. Cry out that all flesh is grass. And its beauty is like the flower of the field. The, the grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. When God says something, He means it. When He means it, it's going to happen. Period. And what God has said through Isaiah is a word of comfort. Word of comfort and that it has pardoned our sin according to the Lord's work. It has prepared the way for the Lord to come. It has revealed to us the Lord's glory all because of the reliability we have on the Word of God. Let me just remind you in closing what Romans chapter 15 verse 4 says. For whatever was written in former times, in former days, was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement I like the King James here where it says through the comfort of the scriptures we may have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The King of glory has given us a word of comfort. And I trust that that word of comfort is ours.